In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask you for pardon of my sins and grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. It's a busy day in Capernaum. It's a busy city. It's a third affair. Uh, Capernaum at the time of Jesus is uh, it's a confluence of routes, of roads, of maritime routes as well. It's a great place of trade. Along the streets there are lots of people coming and going. People trying to sell their wares, people shopping. Little detachments of soldiers here and there, soldiers keeping guard. In Capernaum there's a very fine um, synagogue an outstanding synagogue and it dominates the town paid for by the local centurion who is unusually pious and respectful of the people of God so there's a strong military presence in Capernaum a strong religious presence and lots of trading going on lots of people, families, young people, old people there is a kind of a din in the street, a din of life. And under some awnings, facing out to the street, there is the tax collector's counter. And around that kiosk, or around that place, there's a sense of tension. Because the tax collector, who here is called Levi, is, uh, is unclean because he deals with money which has passed through the hands of Gentiles and that renders him ritually impure, unclean. And worse than that, he's doing the dirty work for the colonizing force. That's why in scripture, uh, on several occasions, we hear about grouped together tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, they're the lowest of the lowest despised because they do a despicable job and Levi is there plying his trade the reputation of the tax collectors was not only that they were doing a dirty and disloyal job but that they were also miserly and that they were taking you know feathering their own nests as, for example, in the case of Zacchaeus. And in the midst of all this hustle and bustle and din and tension, you, Lord Jesus, pass by. We see you walking down the street, dressed well in a nice tunic made by your mother. No one really notices you, but as you pass by the tax office, you look at Matthew, 
and you say to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed you. This is how Matthew himself describes his vocation in his own gospel. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. We can well understand that Matthew would never forget that call as he sat there. And he would never forget that he rose up and left behind, in a sense, his old life to follow you, Lord Jesus, to follow Christ. And each one of us can think of our own vocation because we all have our own call from Christ, unique personal, sublime vocation, a path to heaven through the ups and downs of life with the easy bits and the hard bits, but always that call of the Lord, you, you, follow me. I guess we're indebted to Caravaggio for his extraordinary painting of the calling of Matthew, which is in the church of San Luigi dei Francesi, St. Louis of the French in Rome. And it is a painting that could help us to pray. What is the gaze of Jesus Christ like in that moment? St. Josemaria often used to say that, didn't he, in his preaching? What must the gaze of Christ be like? What did Matthew see in the face of Jesus? What did he see in your eyes, Lord? What did he see in your heart? Most likely, in his own way, he experienced what the rich young man experienced, as recounted by, uh, by Mark in his Gospel. Jesus looked on him and loved him. Jesus looked on him and loved him. And every vocation, every call, is the fruit of divine love, of Christ who looks on you and looks on me and loves us. And it makes sense because the ultimate objective of our lives, our destiny, our deepest hope and desire and need is to gaze upon the face of God, to gaze upon the face of God. But he first gazes on our face and he loves us. And if we respond, we end up loving him and we end up gazing upon him in the beatific vision. There's a lovely little episode in Dante's um, Paradiso, in his great classic, his epic, and the traveller is just about to enter into heaven and behold the beatific vision, behold the face of God. And the guide says to the traveller, now to that face which most resembles Christ's, lift up your face its power alone can make you look on Christ. So the guy tells the traveller just before he enters into heaven, into the presence of God's face, he says, to that face which most resembles Christ, lift up your face. As a prelude, as a final preparation for heavenly joy, the traveller is encouraged to look on the face of Mary, that face which most resembles Christ. Its power alone can make you look on Christ. 
So to behold the face of Christ, we do well in the first instance to contemplate the face of Mary. This is what we do all the time as Catholics. We, uh, we fly to thy patronage, O Holy Mother of God. In any event, every vocation involves a loving gaze of Christ on each person. And the call, whatever your vocation is, and you have one, whatever my vocation is, and thank God I have one, it's a fruit of that loving gaze of Christ. A vocation is not a burden. It's not a pain. A vocation is a way of life. It's a meeting of Christ's gaze with our gaze, of Christ's love with our love. doesn't mean it's all going to be a bed of roses. I don't think any vocation is. Every vocation involves suffering. But every suffering in Christ involves resurrection. That's why every vocation fundamentally is gift and something immensely positive. So we can contemplate the vocation of Matthew. Um, what did Matthew see written on the face of Christ? What did he perceive coming from the heart of Christ? And we can only meditate on, contemplate on the immense love of Jesus Christ for Matthew. All the love of the Trinity poured out on Levi, on Matthew. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have crowned you with glory and compassion. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I brought you to birth, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and spotless in his sight. All these words of scripture, they do convey to us the beauty of the Christian calling and indeed within that calling, our specific calling, be it as it is for most people, the vocation to marriage, family life, or the vocation to be a single person, or for love of God, a celibate person, or to be a priest, or some other form of love or service in the life of the church. There are so many beautiful charisms and vocations. But whatever our call is, like with St. Matthew, it's not something based on our merit or our capabilities, because if the Lord were calling people based on merit or behavior or, you know, how would you put it, based on their moral report card, he wouldn't have been calling Matthew because Matthew was akin to a public sinner. He was one of them. And yet our Lord calls him because our Lord calls each one. Jesus, thank you for the gift of my own vocation. Help me to embrace it with all my heart. Our vocation very often is where we find ourselves. It's the call to be a saint in the particular job I'm in, in the particular family situation I'm in, in the particular health situation I have, with the challenges that I have. Ultimately, vocation is, as we know, a question of walking with Christ, of being with Christ. Lord, help me to appreciate my vocation, to have a clearer vision of it, and to be with you more in my vocation. In fact, 
in our prayer, we can give ourselves to God right now. We can meet his gaze, respond to his call. In the very first point in the chapter on calling in the way, St. Josemaria says, why don't you give yourself to God once and for all, really, now? Why don't you give yourself to God once and for all, really, now? That's something we can do right now in our prayer. To give oneself to God is, is something we can do right now, under grace, with our intellect in our, and, and with our will. Give ourselves to God. Lord, I give myself completely to you. I remember meeting in a hospital. Uh, an old lady came up and started speaking with me. And she told me that in that very hospital, uh, her sister had died not so long before. And she shared with me, she said, I never knew my sister had such a deep spiritual life. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, um, well, when she was dying, she kept repeating, Lord, I give myself completely to you. Jesus, I give myself completely to you. And I realized, therefore, that she had a deep spiritual life. And that made me think, because that's true, isn't it? Somebody who truly gives him or herself to God shows that they have a deep spiritual life because they're they're trusting God they're entrusting themselves completely to him they're letting his gaze meet their gaze and they're letting God do something beautiful with their lives those who give themselves to God you might say live on a different plane their works are no longer purely human works they are human works but they carry somehow the power and the grace of God as well that's why the saints as it were, always punch above their weight because they're letting God work through them. Be it done unto me according to your word. And that's what we could say in our prayer on this feast of St. Matthew. Look what the Lord did through Matthew. The very name Matthew means gift of God. <laughs> and there's no question that St. Matthew is an enormous gift for the church. For all of us because an apostle of the Lord and an evangelist and look at all the good his um, his gospel has done even the account of his vocation look at all the good it has done when somebody gives themselves to God God takes that gift of the person and if you like multiplies its human potential uh, embellishes it enhances it makes it of eternal value Mother Teresa of Calcutta, St. Teresa of Calcutta, of course, she used to recount that when she went off to follow Christ as a nun, well, to join the Loreto sisters, whatever it was, she was leaving her mum, who was a woman of great faith, and she recalled that her mother's last words to her as she left the, the house, and I think, I don't know how old Mother Teresa was at the time, but I think she was a teenager, she was very young, so she was embarking on a great adventure, you know, and... Uh, and probably it was hard for her parents to see her go at such a young age. But she recalled how uh, her mother gave her a little bit of advice and said, uh, place your hands in Jesus' hands and follow him and don't look back. Well, Jesus, that's, that's actually what I would like to do right now. I'd like to place my hands in your hands and follow you and not look back. 
because I trust that in following you all is very much for the good and life is not just worthwhile life is hugely worthwhile it's a gesture actually still in the liturgy in the Roman rite at ordination and the um, the candidate for the priesthood joins his hands and places them within the hands of the bishop who's ordaining him and he makes in that moment he makes um, his promise of obedience to his bishop or his prelate whoever his ordinary is and to his successors his promise of obedience to his superior his hierarchical uh, superior um, but it's an amazing gesture isn't it that you place your hands in the hands of the bishop it's an image of placing your hands in the hands of Christ apparently it comes from uh, feudal lordship that people who were serving under the feudal lord they pledged their loyalty to the lord and he would pledge his protection of his people um, by taking his hands into his hands and that somehow it found you know from that secular usage it made its way into the liturgy and, and there it is still being used in our liturgy of ordination but it's an image that maybe can help all of us like St. Josemaria says why don't you give yourself to God totally now well why not it's something we can do every time we pray it's something we can do every time we take part in the Mass this is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. When we experience our Lord's incredible self-giving in the Eucharist, it seems natural that that would elicit from us our self-giving to him. Well, Lord, if you're giving me your body, if you're pouring out your blood for me, let me give you my body. Let me give you my blood. Let me place my hands inside your wounded hands, inside your loving hands, inside your risen and resurrected hands, and let me be guided by your love. At the end of the day, that's what every vocation is. It's an adventure of love in which the protagonist is God, who gives us the opportunity to use our freedom absolutely to the full, to commit to the greatest possible cause which is eternal life, eternal love, and, and of course service to, service to our brothers and sisters. It's, it's interesting to note Matthew's account of his own vocation. It's quite, it's quite, um, it's very brief. It's in the ninth chapter of his gospel. Um, so our Lord comes along and says to Levi, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Next line. And as he sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, we could dwell on the, uh, the image of God's mercy, which we, we, we understand from, from this scene very, very well, uh, very beautiful. 
I've come to call sinners, not the righteous. Lord, what a great consolation that is for, for me, for all of us. Um, but we could also dwell on the simple fact that having been called by the Lord, Matthew organizes a gathering for his friends. He has a feast. He is celebrating. He's full of joy. And this also is, is something worth praying about, that when a person gives themselves completely to God, and when I say gives themselves completely to God, I mean in their ordinary life very often, by being really committed to where the Lord is calling them on a daily basis, in their profession, in their work, in their, in their um, pastimes, in their family status, whether they're married or single or uh, widowed or, or whatever, whatever vocation we have, when a person gives themselves completely to God and follows uh, where the Lord is leading them, they do experience joy. They experience a joy that the world cannot give, that comes only from, from Christ. And that joy is expansive. It, it has to spread out. It has to reach others. Lord, please give me always a great joy in my vocation. Uh, may we all have the joy of following Christ. And that obviously demands of us, for sure, a daily effort of really following Christ, which isn't just a formulation of an intention, it's not just a nice idea. It's something, as we know, very practical. It's how we live our lives. It's how we treat people. It's how we work. Uh, it's how we pray. So Lord, help me to follow you, to heed your call, not to be afraid to, to stand by your side. There's a great homily by St. John Paul II, which he gave back in 1979 on Boston Common in the United States. I mean, I think this was a day or two after he left Ireland, he went straight to the United States. He says, to each one of you, I say, heed the call of Christ when you hear him saying to you, follow me, walk in my path, stand by my side, remain in my love. There is a choice to be made, a choice for Christ and his way of life and his commandment of love. There is a choice to be made. Well, yes, Lord, I know. In fact, that's a choice I have to make every day, every morning. Follow me, walk in my path, stand by my side, remain in my love. And sometimes it can be demanding, especially in a more secularized society, to remain in Christ's love, to stand by his side. Sometimes we'll feel it's a bit like standing by the cross of Jesus with his mother Mary. Well, so be it. Is there anything more noble that I could do with my life? Looking at the history of Opus Dei, of this smaller family within the great family of the church, um, it's lovely to see some of the, maybe the lesser known people and how they responded to their vocation under very difficult circumstances. Just a few, few days ago was the 90th anniversary of the death of Maria Ignacia Garcia Escobar one of the first women of the work. 
who was a tuberculosis patient in uh, in the King's Hospital, in the public hospital in Madrid. And she died there in 1933. She asked for admission to Opus Dei in April of 1932. Just shows how long she was in hospital, months and months, in a very bad way. At, as we know, at that time, there were many people dying of tuberculosis in that hospital. Um, and she was inspired initially by the chaplain in the hospital, who was a very young priest called Father Jose Maria Somoano, priest of the Diocese of Madrid, who was there, you know, working with the sick, looking after the sick. And St. Jose Maria, as is well known, he used to go a lot to the hospitals, uh, as he went also to the slums, to look after the poor and the sick, and also to seek their collaboration for Opus Dei. Because he felt, well, look, if God wants me to found something, against my better judgment, as it were, if God wants me to, um, I suppose, bring about a new family within the church, that's a supernatural enterprise. That's essentially a work of grace. It's not something that I can do with my own strength. So he said, well, where, where am I going to get the strength to do this? How, how will I manage this? I said, well, I, I needed to go to the little children in the slums, the poor, the hungry, the neglected. And I needed to go to the sick and the dying in the hospitals of Madrid. That's always the way of the church. Grace flows from the cross. The resurrection comes from, from loving suffering, from patience. So that's where St. Jose Maria went. And he was a kind of a volunteer chaplain. There was obviously no, no shortage of work in the hospital. And he used to go with, with young university students, men who were getting in touch with with the apostles of the work and some of the first vocations of men came from among those fellows and he also visited the women's ward and he also got to know Father Jose Maria Samoano and explained Opus Dei to him and very quickly Father Jose Maria Samoano embraced this vocation to the work he sought you know, seeking holiness in ordinary life in his case in, in the exercise of his ministry as a diocesan priest in, in the hospital and um, so he took on the founder's uh, zeal and enthusiasm, and he was asking the patients, please pray for a special intention of Father Jose Maria Escriva. Please pray for a special intention of, of this other priest whom you see in the wards also. And Maria Ignacia uh, García Escobar was a discreet lady and perceptive. And she saw, she knew Father Jose, Luis, Jose Maria Somoano, and because he was their chaplain in the hospital, and she also saw this young priest, I mean, at that stage, St. Josemaria was aged about 20, or 30, I should say, and she was struck by his cheerfulness, you know, just by his demeanour. And um, Father Josemaria Samoano was saying to Maria Ignacia Escobar, try and offer things up for an, an important intention of Father Josemaria Escriva. Pray for that. And initially, he wouldn't say anything to, to her about what the intention was. Of course, the intention was Opus Dei. And she would ask Father Samoano, but well, what's this intention? I'm, I'm offering up serious things here, a lot of pain. Uh, I can't sleep at night with the pain. I'm offering it for this intention. What is it? And Father Samoano didn't tell her, at least not initially. And, but he did say, look, Maria Ignacia, it's not an intention of a few days or even for a few months. It's an intention for all time. It's a very beautiful reality. And that kept her going. Uh, eventually, she got to know St. Josemaria directly herself. And she herself heard the call of Jesus to follow him, to follow him in this new path, 
even though she was a dying woman, she was following him by sanctifying her ordinary work, you might say, which at that point was dying of tuberculosis. And she asked for admission to the work in April of 1932. Then in July of that year, Father Samoano came into the hospital, but this time as a, as a patient, dying having been poisoned by, uh, by anti-Catholic people. So he died a martyr. Um, so in the history of Opus Dei, there are also martyrs from the very beginning. And Maria Ignacia herself died, as I, as I mentioned, uh, in September of 1933. But just thinking about these people, um, and probably it's, I feel I must read more about them and get to know them better. They heard the call of our Lord in, in very particular circumstances, and they gave their all. They gave their all. And we might say we, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, the people who have prepared the way for us. And that's always the way in the life of the church. The history of the work is a history of callings, of vocations, of invitations and responses. The history of the church is the history of friendship between Christ and each soul. And the Feast of St. Matthew brings to mind this great mystery of our calling to be friends with Christ. Jesus, I ask you through the intercession of Our Lady and through the intercession especially of St. Matthew that I may listen to your call, follow me, that I may follow it with all my heart. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections and inspirations you have communicated to me in this time of prayer. I ask you for help to put them into effect. My Mother Immaculate, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.